So here's what we're going to try to try to get done this evening. We went through, uh, we got through our introduction of kind of some biblical principles on how we study, um, how we need to start relying on how God has acted in the past or the way that um, God's narrative has been given to help us inform how we can then understand what we're being presented in the New Testament. And so we got through some examples of that. Last week, we started going through Matthew 24. We're going to fly over the beginning of Matthew 24 to ramp us back up to where we needed to be, which is to end Matthew 24. And, uh, and then that's going to run a smack dab into the question, which is, is the rapture a biblical doctrine? Do we have enough information in the Bible to allow us to understand or to agree to a concept of a rapture, of God's people being taken from the earth uh, and leaving a time of tribulation and then eventual return of Jesus for like a thousand year reign or millennial kingdom before the world is ended. Um, well, so we're going to talk about that. I'll, I'll introduce that a little bit more, um, what, the, what the general doctrine is. We're going to look at the four prime passages. I'm going to say three prime passages. There's one and it's really iffy. Um, but we're going to talk about those. And what, what we're going to run into is the truth is that the, is the rapture is a, the prime end of times doctrine in the United States. It is the dominant theology. We need to ask ourselves, based upon what we know and how we read the scripture, is that tenable? Is that true? And if it's not true, what does it leave us with? And if it is true, how do we react to it? Okay? So we're going to run smack dab into that because in Matthew 24 is one of those pieces of scripture that is uh, kind of one of the primary reference for um, the, the doctrine of the rapture. So that's what we're going to try to accomplish this week. So let's fly back over Matthew 24, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come into, I think we left off kind of right where our corpses and vultures were, which I found, uh, I'll give you a quick preview. So I've, I think I found an alternative to the understanding of that particular verse that I'm comfortable with. I'm not saying that the other one's wrong, and I'm not saying I know that this is right, but kind of applying some of the principles that we've talked about, I think I found something else that I thought, if someone were to, to make the case that this is what they mean by using that, that vulture and, and uh, corpse verse, I, I don't know, it seems tenable to me. It seems viable, because remember I told you that, that I would tell you if I didn't think something was a slam dunk? I'm not sure that, that Roman standard thing is a slam dunk. I think it's close. I think it makes a lot of sense with the options that are out there. But I got, I got another option that I want to run by and maybe have you guys think about and, and see what you think. Okay? So, let's start back in Matthew 24. We started running up to Matthew 24 by understanding that Jesus uh, goes into the temple. We see this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. Okay? He, he chucks a bunch of people out. It's arguably the second time he's done this to the temple. And in a sense, he's passing judgment on it. He's, he's saying, he, he's, if he goes in there and cleans the temple out like he has, he's effectively stopped sacrifices for the amount of time that it takes them to kind of try to get all this stuff back together. It's not just he threw a hissy fit and left. He has stopped the ability for them to do sacrifices. Okay? That's a judgment on the temple. We pick up kind of that understanding of judgment on the temple in Matthew 23. He's pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees, saying, these are the responsibilities you had and you're blind guides. You're hypocrites. This is what you're, uh, his judgment is casting not only on the temple institution, but to the people that were supposed to be administering these things. Okay? And then right at Matthew 23, 37, we see this lament over the city of Jerusalem and on the temple itself. And Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. Okay? That house is the temple. And you see, uh, Jesus' description of it is your house, not God's house. It is now yours, and it is empty. It is desolate. Okay? So he's pronounced judgment upon the temple. As we walk into Matthew 24, uh, they leave the temple, and the, the disciples are interesting characters because Jesus has just pronounced judgment on the temple. They, they leave the temple mount, they go through the Kidron Valley, and they end up on the Mount of Olives, and they do what a good Jew would do, which is to turn around and be like, look at the temple. And the disciples do that, seeming to have missed what Jesus has just done by casting judgment on it, and they say, it's beautiful, Jesus. <laughs> look at the beautiful building. And Jesus continues and says, uh, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Judgment again. He's cast judgment upon the temple. And then the disciples ask a question because they think judgment is coming upon the temple and they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and as of the close of the age. They have put two things together. If you're getting rid of the temple, this interaction between man and God, the place where heaven and earth intersect, where we make our sacrifices to atone. And if you're saying that the temple will fall, it must be the end. It must be when God is setting up His forever kingdom on, on the earth. And so they ask, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And the close of the age, we're going to make two distinctions. And I'm going to add to this distinction this week. I don't know if, some, if all of you guys saw the Facebook post, but I want to link two word types together. We said, um, for end, what was the, the word that's the end of a process? Process? Yep. That is tell us. Tell us. Okay. That's our end of a process. And what was the end of the age or the end of the world? Yeah. Suntalea. Okay. And this is going to be end of all things. Now, I'm going to add, this was our end. I'm going to add another word in here that seems to be coupled with these two concepts and it's the word for coming. Okay. The word for coming. When coming is referring to basically this, this establishment or the establishing of this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, because remember we said that, that the Bible describes this kingdom of, of Christ being established, right? Like it's not establishing at one time, it continues to be established, okay? That, when he's talking about that, uh, and shoot, I didn't write this down, so my spelling is going to be off, but the uh, oikomen is going to be our coming, uh, even if referring to Jesus as king, related to the end of a process or the establishment of his kingdom. Okay? That's going to be oikomene. End of all things, or the return of Jesus, is going to be a parousia. Parousia. Okay? I think, I think these are, these are linked together. If these are linked together in this way, I think it helps us to understand how, how this description in Matthew 24 brings us about to understanding what the end of the world actually is or his second coming actually is. So we're gonna, we'll test this as we go through today to see if this makes sense, to see if this connection makes sense. In Matthew, in Matthew, there will be times where this is used to describe Paul or somebody else, generally by Paul. Paul tends to use this as just could be somebody coming. Okay? Matthew, however, seems to attach this to Jesus' second coming or the end of all things. Okay, I'll leave this up here. You don't need to hold this in your mind. I'll tell you when we get there. Okay? I got the spelling for that if you want it. You're yeah, yeah. Off, you're off okay, well, what is it? E R C H. Oh, E R C H. A or let's see, E R C H O M. Okay. A I. Urkamai. Is that right? 
Did I do that right? Okay. That's fine. That'll work. If, if we decide it's wrong, we'll fix it later. It's uh, partially the point. Helpful, though. Thank you, Travis Daniels. Okay. So, we are presented with Jesus at the start of 24, and, and they, they basically ask this question, when will be uh, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming, and as the close of the age? Um, when they say, coming here, does anybody have your blue letter Bible up? Yep. What is it? What's coming? Which, which verse? Uh, verse two, 3. Yeah. Perusia. Okay? End of all things. When will be the end of all things? Okay. So, Jesus answers their question, but we proposed last week that he answers them separately. He says these things are not combined. The temple will be destroyed. He's pronounced judgment on the temple, but it does not mean that it will be the end of all things. And he separates those. And we started walking through the answer to the first question, which is basically, when is the destruction of the temple? And uh, we came up with the, a bunch of things that Jesus said. He, he made the distinction that said, when the temple will be destroyed, it will have distinct signs. You will know it's coming. You will be able to see specific signs that point to the destruction of the temple. Okay? And then as he talks about what is the end of everything, or his, his second return, there will be no signs. There will be no signs. Okay, so the question is, if, that's, if we feel like that sounds right, we needed to make sure that uh, all these signs that point to the end of uh, Telos, the destruction of the temple, did we see those in that time frame between when Jesus was speaking and the destruction of the temple? And as we walked through the examples last week, I think we found that we did. Okay, I think we saw, we talked about um, many will come and say, I am the Christ. There were a lot of false messiahs around this time. Messiahs tended to show up in, Jew, in the Jewish history um, because when the Jewish people were under duress, that's when people would come up and rise up and say, we, we will help, we will fight. Um, and so the Messiah would come. This concept of being redeemed and being uh, brought back to be uh, the enemies of God underneath the feet of the Jewish people and them to be elevated came in times of great duress. Okay? So I think we saw the list that was from Richard Horsley's book about these false Christs, these false messiahs. And uh, Jerome said, who was uh, the first guy that translated the Greek New Testament to Latin, said there were at least three factions in Jerusalem at the time that the temple fell of people that said, no, this is the Messiah. No, this is the Messiah. No, this is the Messiah. So that seems to have panned out during that time frame. It said, uh, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We talked about historically there were a number of earthquakes, um, very severe ones, in that general area uh, during the time that Jesus is talking about. And that we talked about famines. There was a great famine in Jerusalem. Uh, we, wrote, uh, we read that pretty like, gross um, stuff from Josephus about how bad the famine was in Jerusalem. And uh, so he kind of described that. And if you remember that Jewish history we talked about a little bit, is that part of that famine could have been alleviated, but the Jews that were in the temple were stockpiling the food. And they refused to share it with the people outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and in fact, they destroyed it to try to amp up people's allegiance and say, we got nothing to go back on. We have to fight. Okay? So yeah, those things do seem to pan out. Uh, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will fall away and betray one another. All those seem to be true. As a matter of fact, that's the same warning uh, Jesus gave the disciples when he sent them out in Matthew 10. It's, it's, it's almost word for word. This is what you're going to run into as you take my message to the nations. My problems will become your problems. <laughs> so when you see the guy that you're following end up on a cross and dying for his message, that's, when he's, that's take up your cross and follow me. You were following uh, the leader of a failed revolution. And, and that's, he's warning that, that, of that again. And we do see that in Acts. Like that seemed to vouch itself out in the history of Acts. Those things did happen. All the disciples were killed, save John, and it wasn't because they didn't attempt it. Okay? So that did seem to pan out. 
Uh, we moved into, uh, well, we saw the end of that. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And, uh, yeah, Erechimai, not Oikimene, was the world. I told you I was dangerous Greek. You guys remember? Week one, I said I'm dangerous at the Greek. Okay. We'll be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That end was a telos. Okay? The end of a process, the destruction of the temple. Okay? All those things lead up to the destruction of the temple. Then we got into the abomination of desolation. You guys remember what I said the abomination of desolation was? Yeah, Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. Why do we think that's the abomination of desolation? Who would agree with us on that? Luke. Luke would. Writer of Bible guy. Luke. <laughs> Luke 21. Okay. We said uh, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about what this abomination of desolation could be. As a matter of fact, there was discussion that it happened in like 167 BC when... Um, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, basically took a took a pig and he killed it in the temple, sacked like blood all over the temple and defamed it. And so there was thought that, that that was it. We said that Luke describes in the same section that he's describing all the things that we read in Matthew 24 says the abomination will be Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. Okay, I, there's a lot you can discuss about the abomination of desolation. I feel like Luke spe- uh, like spells it out. I'm confident in that description that Luke is giving that I'm not sure we have to toy with all the other options that people give. I feel like Luke covered it. So that's, so we're going with that. And it was the uh, surrounding of Jerusalem by armies. Um, you were told, they're told to flee and they're told to flee quickly. There's all kinds of trouble that will be happening. This is where we see these nasty things happening in Jerusalem. You see the great famine. Um, obviously, the descriptions that we get, uh, one who's on the house stop, don't go down to take what in his house. If you're pregnant, if it's on a Sabbath, anything that would hinder your flight is part of the warning, saying this, these things will be bad. I want to point out to you that this is going to be trouble. You need to get out of Dodge. Okay, That's the description that we're getting. It says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And we said... We shouldn't take that as just hyperbole. Okay? Based upon some of the descriptions that Josephus gave at that time, I don't know, that seems viable. Those were some bad times in Jerusalem. Um, one thing I, that was interesting about that phrase that we didn't talk about last week, said there will be great tribulations such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. What would be interesting, if we thought this section was referring to the end of the world, why make a distinction that says never will be? If it's the end, that's a non-distinction, Yes? But it makes sense in the context of the temple is going to fall, that will end, and we're saying that this will never occur again. Okay? It makes sense from a temporary measure. It does not make sense to say this will never happen if the world itself was ending. I don't know, that just seems you know, a moot point. Of course it's not going to happen. The world's ending. Okay? Good. Uh, and he kind of ended it. Here's, here's what we're going to get into um, right where we caught up. It says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And we said that the elect would be God's chosen or the church. Um, See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures, or we said eagles, will gather. So let's talk about, he's, given, he's giving a warning he's already given, isn't he? He's already warned about false Christ. 
false prophets. But he does something interesting here in the word that he uses. When he talks about people will perform signs and wonders, this is, this is how Jesus validates his ministry, right? He, he says he, who he is, and then he does things to validate it. So it's a reasonable thing for people to be checking to say, is this man who he says he is? And they say, go out to the wilderness and check it out. Wilderness is an interesting reference. Anybody know why, why wilderness would, would be kind of a key reference for them here? Yes. So, so the wilderness is an interesting biblical place because revolutions happen in wilderness, where, where people go out and they, they they come from. First of all, God's people come from from what is a wilderness, right? Leaving Egypt, you have uh, the people that fled after kind of this tussle between Greek and Rome. Um, they, they go into the wilderness and that's where revolutions are kind of baking. That's where a lot of these false prophets, false messiahs are coming from. And so the reference to say here, hey, go check out in the wilderness because biblically we can look back at some of these examples and say that's where, that's where rebellion starts, where wars starts, where revolutions start. That's what they're pointing to. Go out and see. Go out and see. He's out there. Check the inner rooms. He's among you. He's in there. But it says, for... As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Can somebody check your blue letter Bible on verse 27 and tell me which coming it is? It's the parousia. That's interesting. Because so far he's been focusing on this is the destruction of the temple. This is what's going to happen. And then he, then, he, then he gives this warning that seems to include the word parousia. And either, this means that this is not right. Either the connections we've made are not right. Or, Jesus is hammering home the distinction between the two. And he's saying, I give you this temporary concept of the, of the temple being destroyed. And people want to point and say, look, you need to go out and see the man that's in the wilderness. You need to see the Messiah that's in your inner room. But he says, the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. That implies a very big event of which is clearly seen. Of which you will not have to go into an inner room. You will not have to go into the wilderness. It is plain as day. As lightning shines from the east to the west, the coming, the end of all things, Jesus' coming, will be plain. We will not have these conversations of, hey, was that, was that the end of the world? Everybody, anybody ever thought that? You see a weird looking moon or you see some weird... Uh, this happened to me before. I was out driving. Uh, I, was out, I left my house relatively early in the morning and there's usually some traffic and there's no one around. And you're like, what? <laughs> did, so, did something happen? Did something go on? And I'm still here and, and people are not out and about? And the thing is, is Jesus seems to be making the case here that says, you're going to have to go, you're not going to have to go check. You will know when Christ returns for a second time. You will know that. That's what I think he's doing here. I don't think he's changing topics, but he does change how he uses coming to make a distinction between what he's already described. Okay? I don't know that that's a slam dunk, but it makes a, it makes a lot of sense to me. So then, if we so let, let's 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 start with that. Okay, that, that seems to make sense to me that he's making that distinction. And I think we'll, what we'll continue to see as we move on is we'll continue to see what seems obvious to me as his second coming. He will always use this. He will continue to use Perusia. All right, but then that brings us to that weird verse. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There we said the eagles will gather, and I thought, well. So why is he saying that? Why is he saying that right after he has said something that made the distinction between the, the fall of the temple and his second coming? Okay? 
again, what we talked about earlier, where I think that is that is rightly rendered as eagle. Um, I, I think actually that doesn't impact the way that I think about this verse. Uh, vultures, I, I think, is just not right. Um, it's it's still eagle, okay. And I think the description of uh, kind of the abomination of desolation type of thing, where the sign where they get out of dodge is, um, we talked about. Um, that guy, Cestius Gallus, who comes in in 60, what was it, 66, and he approaches the temple, Roman standards, you have eagles over these corpses these, uh, where the Jews have killed themselves, and then that is a sign of which they get to get out of Dodge. It fits with the Roman army surrounding, it fits with kind of the imagery that we've given here, okay? I still think that's very plausible. But there, there's a reference here that I thought, maybe, maybe this makes sense too. Look in um, Job 39. Aha! Okay. Let's look at a little bit of Job 39. So this is the conversation between God and Job. I love Job. Uh, I love this book. I love this conversation. Um, this is where God is basically... Job is... He's tried, to, <laughs> he's tried to make a case at God for being mistreated. And uh, God is kind of uh, responding back. Okay? So let's see. This is where context is important, right? I could just go back and say, look at 39, um, look at 39 29, and 30. Um, this is about... Um, an eagle, and it says, For them he spies out the prey, his, his eyes behold it from far away, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Okay? You guys see it? You see our connection here? Okay, it's, it's very similar language. Now, I could look at that and say, Oh, good. It said it earlier. Fantastic. It doesn't really tell me anything. All right? But let's look at the context in which this sits. God is responding to Job, and he says, Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home, and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. I'll move just a little bit in 19. Do you, give, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leak like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle... This is the same word, by the way. That's Itoi. ESV renders it eagle here and vulture there. Interesting. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Don't focus so much on that last verse. What's going on? What's God making the case for? Yeah. What, specifically, things that he knows that man does not. Right? Things that he knows that man does not. Yeah, things he controls, things he understands, things that man doesn't. Okay, now go back to Matthew 24. If in verse 27 he's making the case for this is the distinction between when the temple is destroyed and my the Perusia when I come back, and he says, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Do I think it is plausible that he's actually using this as an exclamation point? 
to say, you will know when I come. Like it will be clear at Christ's second coming. But the time is, are things that God knows, things that God understands that man does not. I don't know. I, don't know. I, was, I was reading through that this week. I think it's a possibility. Okay? I don't think that either one of the interpretations we've looked at so far are slam dunks. I think they're better, in my, in my opinion, I think they're better than the options that otherwise exist outside of them. Okay? Um, I think both could be true. Symbols are cool like that. The Bible is cool like that. There's times where it kind of peels like an onion. There's multiple ways that you can read something, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Okay? It's deeper, not different. Okay? Um, but I wanted to tell you that because I, I wanted to make sure you knew that as I go through this process, I look at this and say, I don't know. Either one seems plausible to me. It could be a bit of an exclamation point on verse 27 saying, these are things that God knows and man doesn't. It could be pointing again to a symbol of, this is what the, um, when the abomination, abomination of desolation will occur, and it's another sign that contributes to that discussion. Okay? Fair? Any, any, any confusion? Any questions on that? Isn't there a place in Revelation where it says, during one of the battles about... God given the either ravens or vultures permission to feed on the king, king's flesh and the king's horses. There is. There is there is a part of Revelation that does talk about that, yeah. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing, um, and we probably don't have time to, to hit that, but we will definitely hit it in Revelation. But I'll tell you the interesting thing in the battles in Revelation, um, think Armageddon, okay? This it happens twice, or actually I think it happens once and then he tells the story twice. But there's never a battle. It's always that the enemies of God gather as if there's going to be a battle, and there's no, there's no battle at all with God. They're just destroyed every time. So battles are interesting in that way where like Satan is going to gather all these things, and they're going to, they're going to puff up, and they're going to have a fight against God. And the battle of, of Armageddon is, is just a, they gather, and then God destroys them. It's a very, it's a very non-climactic battle. That reference, the Ravens reference, is a slightly different thing, and we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, okay, so that's where we're at. Um, I just want to be full disclosure that I think there's a couple options there that I feel like are viable. I think both of those are, are viable options for that verse. Okay, I think we're caught up. Um, but we didn't really answer the question why that verse is there. Well, so I think it makes, as an, it makes sense to me as an exclamation point. That's why I think why that verse is there. Right, just to show that after my coming, yes, the things that I know and the creation that I created and this is what is it is it for like an ultimate um, like exclamation point but like period like yeah yeah, I think eating flesh so that's over so I think I don't know that the reference itself to what the eagles are actually doing because um, actually, it, it's, it's interesting. It says where the corpse is, the vultures will gather, or the eagles will gather. It doesn't. It doesn't imply eating. Like there's no reference to it eating anything, right? It's just that they're they're around. Um, as specific as that wording is, I, I actually think it makes a lot of sense to be called back to Job, where that wording is is used, and in the context of which that is used is God saying, "These are the things that I know and understand, and the things that you do not." Um, and so I think in the context, if Jesus is saying. You know, you say, people will say to you, here's the Messiah, go look in the wilderness, go look in the inner rooms. And Jesus says, it, you will know, you will know when, when it happens, but when that actually is, that's, for, that, that's the thing that God knows and you don't. That seems like a viable connection as to why it's there. I actually have trouble from a why it's where it is 
with the other thing, with the, with the Roman standards and being a description of the abomination of desolation, I think it's weirdly placed. It's viable to me, but I think it's weirdly placed. It actually makes sense to me that Job reference makes more sense in the way that the discussion has gone. Um, so I, that's why I think it is. I think it's, it's him reaffirming it will be extremely clear when I come the second time. You will not be guessing whether someone's in the inner room. Um, and these are things that God knows and man doesn't. So know your, know your place and what you are to worry about and what is mine to control and to worry about. And that's kind of the discussion that God is having with Job. And so I, that, that makes sense to me in, in that context. I have a question on the based on the concordance, when it talks about the outline of biblical usage for the word corpse. Yes. You know, the first one says a fall or a downfall. Okay. And then the second is, you know, like a fallen body. Yeah. Um, like as in a metaphor, a failure to beat calamity, could there be anything to that? A failure, what was it, a failure to what? A metaphor of a failure, defeat, and calamity. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could say, and that's, that's actually where they, it is that potential understanding where I think, again, where they're rendering vulture. is like, um, not, it doesn't even have to be specifically that the vulture is eating, but where, where calamity is, there the vultures will be. Like, it makes sense from a, from a general atmosphere. Um, it, would, it still would lead me to say that's a suspicious rendering of vulture. But, I, but that, that question is, I think, basically the question that most of them are answering and why they render it as vulture. Um, and what's interesting about those concordances is that like, there's, no, there's no method of um, more equals potentially more right. Um, this is what, that's why this was interesting looking this week at the Prosia is that like, it would be disingenuous for me to say that that is always used consistently in the Bible to be Christ's second coming. Because Paul simply does not use it that same way. Um, it doesn't mean that I can cast that it is his second coming onto the things that Paul have said. And it doesn't mean that I can't say it's not in what Matthew is saying, it's, it's simply a matter of context, um, which again becomes the art of the translation. So th- I have heard some pretty compelling arguments that, that use that kind of rendering of, uh, of downfall or, or corpse in that circumstance, but um, I don't know that, I personally don't find them more compelling. But yeah? Um, I just checked a dictionary. You're, you're pretty close on the Erkamai versus Persuia. Um, Erkamai is definitely the process of someone moving from one place to another. Yeah. And think of Persuia as, we're done, it's here, type of thing. So it isn't necessarily just about Jesus, it could be about something else, mm. but it's not saying it's coming, it's more like, it has come, it, it's arrived. Oh, so it carries a similar distinction, it's just not specific to... Yeah, Okay. Okay. So one's, one's the process, and then the other one's the completion of that. Okay, okay, I can buy that. Okay. Other questions? That's a good, Kim, uh, thinking about that, so that, that's a hard, that's what makes this difficult, right? Is because you can look at that and say, well, I mean, it seems, it, it, the Bible does use that word in that way, and the interpretation becomes very, like, that's why we, there's a lot of guys talking about those very things. Yeah. Yeah, when it talks about the other verses that use that same word, it's all dead body. For, yeah, for the most part. And, and one of the things they also have done is they try to look at word usage uh, and that, um, that, that corpse word, um, look at it outside of the Bible. Because just because it's not scripture doesn't mean language doesn't work that same way, right? So they can look at, they'll look at other writers during that time and compare word usage and say, all right, can we get a normative use? But then again, people are weird, right? Like some people write interesting ways and they use certain things a certain way. It's a real, it's a, it's a, it's a distinct and interesting process to try to come up with those. Okay, immediately. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
Uh, oh, I skipped one. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. If you guys remember last week, I was reading through Matthew 24, and I was having to kind of put up your hand when you thought the end of the world, this is definitely end of the world stuff. This is my spot right here. This is my spot where I'm like, yeah, I mean, that sounds like end of the world stuff to me. Did anybody, did anybody look at the verses that I posted on, on Facebook yesterday? And sorry, I know I didn't give you a lot of time, but anybody check those out? If not, we'll do it today. Um, so, the same question we've been asking is the same question we're going to ask here, which is, how, how, does, how does the Bible use this kind of language of sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken? Okay, let's, let's read that real quick. And we'll see if we recognize the language. We're looking for sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven. Here we go, Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw, on a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. We'll stop there. Do you see similarities to the language? Okay. What was going on? Yeah, he's pronouncing judgment on Babylon. Was the world destroyed? No. Yeah. Yeah, like the world didn't end there. Now, again, if I pull everything else away and I read that, I think, I feel like that's the end of the world. I mean, the heaven's shaking, okay? Sun becoming dark, that's not, those are natural occurrences, right? Okay? He's not describing a real physical event, right? This is the way that he's describing his wrath and judgment upon the nation of Babylon, okay? All right, let's look at, uh, did this come up yet? Ah, okay, Ezekiel 32, here we go. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man. See, there's a reference of him making a distinction on who he is. Okay, Son of Man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples, and they will haul you up in my dragnet. And I will cast you on the ground, on the open field I will fling you, and will cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you, and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. 
I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with the cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Mercy, I hope everybody ate already. What's he describing? Egypt. Egypt. He's lining them up. He's using the same general description of judgment upon Babylon. Judgment upon Egypt. Was this the end of the world? No. No. So yeah, as I read Matthew 24, I can read it and say, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And without any other context, can that be the end of the world? Yeah, I can see that. But if we see how biblically this language has been used in the past, it actually reveals something, I think, pretty deep. This is God's judgment upon Babylon. And that's a fierce judgment. Carcasses and blood and stuff. That's fierce. Judgment upon Egypt. Who's he judging here? Yeah. It's, it's, the nation. it's Israel. It's, think of the words that he just used. He said, if it were not for the elect, if it weren't for those whom I have chosen, your average Jewish guy thinks he fits into that category. I am those whom God has chosen. God's chosen people. And he's just called the temple desolate. And he's pronounced a judgment equivalent to how he talks about the great enemies of Israel, Babylon and Egypt, with the same language. That's devastating, what he said. We take that as the end of the world, and we're actually missing a very deep thing that God is saying about those whom he has chosen as his people. And the truth is, is that they stopped. They stopped choosing him. They left him. And this is, the, this is the reaction. This is why they're left desolate and why his judgment falls hard and that's why the temple has to be destroyed. That's judgment language. That's not the end of the world. That's not the stars falling from the sky. That's God's judgment on, his, the, on the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? We see how that language makes sense? Okay, I totally get, I want you to hear me, my sympathy here, I totally get it without that context how we can think this sounds like the end of the world. But like, once we start looking how God himself has kind of used these descriptions in the past, I think it pulls us right back down. I think it pulls us right back down to judgment. But we had to do context for that, right? I couldn't just go back and check the verse and say, oh, he said it here, <laughs> and oh, he said it here. I had to know what was going on around it. And people that know God's word, like the guys that are, that are writing this, and Jesus especially, right? He, he knows the context in which those words sit. And so he uses those to bring in a much bigger picture than he could. He could have reproduced all the language against Babylon and all the language against Egypt. But those two sentences right there pull us back to both of these and we can understand this with a lot more depth. This doesn't have to be the end of the world. It fits in context of what he's talking about, the destruction of the temple. His judgment upon the people fits right in with understanding the temple is desolate. Were they high in Babylon and Egypt, Pharaoh, like discerning the heavens? Is that why this is so strong? So, so actually, is, is this why this is so terrifying to them? Because that's where their, that's where a, their hope and their yes. worship and everything was. It's a very good question. So, um, a lot of and Dave, you can talk about more whether this is still the case, but like uh, especially back in 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 those times when you're talking about. 
um, Egypt and Babylon, um, they very much in Rome, they very much saw like the heavenly bodies reflecting or affirming things that are going on. And so, the, part of the description of when Augustus becomes king of Rome is there's a description of like the heavenly bodies aligning, the the stars were in the right place. And so, yeah, they 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 thought that the gods otherwise controlled those things and used them to communicate to them um, about certain circumstances. And that that doesn't uh, get rid of the fact that like obviously Egypt thought the sun you know was a god. And so, yeah, all those things are baked into God control. God himself has control over those things. I will darken the sun. I will, you can see cataclysmic shifts of the universe being reflected in the sky as they change on earth. And that's kind of the picture that I think God is painting in some of these things. And it does hit those guys home um, because they had a lot more invested in what was happening in the sky than perhaps we would. Okay. And let's continue. And they will see the Son of Man... Coming, I said, I think this is still in the context of the temple. What is coming there in Matthew 24, 30? All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming. What's the word for coming? Herkimai. Herkimai, right? He said, he's, th- this helps actually with me, I feel like makes the stronger distinction that he said Perusia for reason to make that distinction earlier. And now he's moved back and is still talking about the temple. It makes sense within the judgment of Israel. And it makes sense to say him coming here is still establishment of kingdom stuff. I think this the destruction of the temple, when I said that the kingdom is establishing, I think this is our last establishing before Christ returns. I think we're out of, we're out of things to drop. Okay, I think that's why he's still talking about it in this language. This is the, the, the temple had to fall and that was it still being established. To give it maybe a little more of a twist, I don't know if I want to dig too much into it. Okay. But uh, Jesus did mention that he was talking about himself when he said he'll destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Because when he died, I mean, the earth was shaken, there was earthquakes, and the the sky was darkened, and then... then, uh, then he came back through. True, and I think I think the probably the a healthy way to look at that is um, is basically shadows of what was ultimately to come, right? Like you don't have you don't see all of those fulfilled as his death, but you do, right? You do see the sky darkened. You do see there seems to be an implicit judgment on the temple with the veil being torn. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I think you definitely see hints of that. Absolutely. And it says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, so this actually still causes me trouble, right? Because I feel like this sounds like He's collecting people for, for the end of the world. Go ahead. How about, because there's also dead people walking around after He dies. Uh, that's true. That's true. There are dead people walking around when He dies. <laughs> so, let, let me suggest a minor language thing that I think might make this easier to digest within the context and the word is for angels what's the word yeah yeah hungalas can be rendered as heavenly bodies angels or messengers now in the context of the temple is destroyed and who's he who's he talking to who's he giving this description to jesus his disciples now 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 and he will send out his messengers with a loud trumpet call Um, they blow trumpets starting battles starting events Okay? He will send out his message, message excuse me, his messengers with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his people from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What is the disciples' responsibility? Yeah. What do we say happens at the temple? Like abomination and desolation, people have to do what? From Drew compared to being in Jerusalem. They gotta get out of Dodge. They they start spreading. 
They start to, I remember I said the, the phrase with diaspora, okay? They're being dispersed from Jerusalem. They're going into the world, which Jesus describes as happening, right? And Paul agrees. Like, the gospel is being spread to the world. And this message, then he sends his messengers to go out and collect his people from the ends of the earth. That makes a lot of sense. We're doing that. We're in this verse. We're his messengers that are going to the ends of the earth to collect his people. That's us. So, I think that all still can sit within context. I'm not even sure that's a big of a stretch. Like, I think reading it as, as it is plainly causes me a bunch of questions. Understanding within all this context continues to sit, for me, very comfortably in the destruction of the temple. And it makes sense with the events that Jesus described it happening in. They are dispersed. They do go out into the four. And when we see, um, when we see four winds, we talked about this at the first class, April mentioned it, that like, um, we want to think of that as four as whole. Okay, it's, it's a, a number of completion related almost always to the earth. We see four winds, four corners of the earth. Okay, things like that. So I think that's what he's talking about here. The Son of Man comes. His kingdom is still establishing. This is our last marker of being established before he returns finally. And during the time between then and whenever he comes the second time, his messengers are out gathering people. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me and where it sits. All right, let's continue. The lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things takes place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, there he's done it again. He's used some language that I feel like has caused me back in the field. Well, maybe I was all wrong about that stuff. The world is ending. Okay? From the fig tree. Do you remember, remember why, why is he talking about a fig tree? Anybody remember? He cursed a fig tree. Jesus is a fickle man. <laughs> and he looks at it and he says, I'm done with you. You're not producing fruit. Uh, it is a typology. I don't think he hates figs. Um, it's, 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 it's showing his judgment upon the nation of Israel. Okay? And, but he uses that same fig tree. It's an interesting example he gives. It's, it sounds a little like an example he's already given in this section about knowing that something is coming. What was the other reference he used? Has to do with a woman. <coughs> yes, the birth pains, right? It's when, you, when, when, she is, when the birth pains are coming, like there's no stopping it. It is definitely going to happen. The signs are clear. Something is, something is going to occur quickly, right? And so he uses the fig tree as a similar example. Um, when you see the fig tree and its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. As you see these things, you know that it is definitely happening and that it is near. And then he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What's the, what's the general time span of a generation? How many years? Forty. Temple is destroyed in... AD 70. Jesus is talking here probably somewhere close to 80, 30, 33. Somewhere in there. Okay? There's debate about Jesus' actual years. Okay? 80, 30 to 33. Um, if I say, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. If we're talking about the end of the world, Jesus has failed or he's really twisting both the words this and generation. Okay? We, we have to try either interpret this real wonky or generation real wonky. And I've seen some very interesting that I think are very, very confusing discussions on generation being something else than what this is. Okay? If we take it for what it is, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. 
You know that it's going to come. This generation, you disciples, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Is this, does it ring true? Is it accurate if that's the case? I can't find any reason to tug this thing around anymore and try to make it something that it isn't. And let this try to jump me out of context and say, well, it must be the end of the world now. He's talking about this generation to the fellows that he's talking to. I think it lets us sit right in the same context. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's saying it's going to happen. He said it's going to happen in your generation. And he pretty much nails it. He's got the timing down really distinctly. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Tricky. Tricky. Now, we just got out of heaven and earth stuff, didn't we? We just got out of heaven and earth stuff. Let me propose something to you that might make sense. What is he just called judgment upon? What's being destroyed? The temple. So the temple, from a Jewish perspective, is heaven and earth. Okay? It's where heaven and earth intersect. Even its design okay, is this thought process that you have a landmass in the middle. This is the Holy of Holies, kind of that area. And then these outer courts as a sea. Um, it, it meant it was a, like a microcosm of the earth, the heaven and earth itself. Okay? As a matter of fact, when um, Herod was rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, he wanted to change the design up a little bit, and they fought him fierce because of how, how much they believed that this is to represent a microcosm of the heavens and the earth. Okay? They would not let the design be changed. So, if, if that's a tenable thought, okay? if he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, does that make sense in the context? The temple will pass away, but my, what I'm saying will not. Yes. Here's another option. He could be saying literally heaven and earth. Okay? He could just be, again, this might be an exclamation point phrase. Everything you see around you could be destroyed. My words will never fail you. I think that's viable too. I think that's viable too. In no instance though do I feel like we have to come out of the understanding of the destruction of the temple to make this mean the end of the world. I do not think that's required to understand that. I think we have two pretty decent options as to what he could be doing here that doesn't require us to jump context all the way we've been to say this has to be the end of the world. And one of the things I did not do, and you can, you can take the time to do this, but I talked too long as it is, so I we just don't have time to do this, but trying to make the case that it is the end of the world. Because what I've done is I showed you, I, I, we kind of lined these up and said, it's the temple, it's the temple, it's the temple. And then I'm using that as a reference to say, he's still talking about the temple. Does it make sense that he jumped ship? But I suppose if you disagree on some of the places where I said it was the temple, that becomes a little more difficult. So I'm just introducing that to you, that I'm giving you what I think is true, because I don't think we have a lot of time to parse through why I think the other is not true. Okay? But I'm just I'm throwing that out there so you know that, so I can be fair in the discussion that we're having. I think it's, I think it's right. Um, but there will be people that otherwise would say, this is not, this, this is not destruction of the temple time. This has got to be end of the world stuff. Um, and they would have made a few different turns than we would have made. I think we made safe turns. I think we made biblically feasible terms, turns that make sense in the context of God's forever story. Um, but just so you know, you will hear intelligent people talk about this section of scripture um, that will just make different turns than us and that case will build. Okay, does that make sense? We need, we need to be honest about what we're, what we're dealing with here. I've kind of stacked the deck a little because we just don't have time to go through all the reasons I think the other ones aren't right. Um, but I'm not, uh, what I'm encouraging you is, if you're interested in that, find someone that believes it. Find someone that really believes that this is into the world stuff and see what they have to say about it. Okay? Let, them, let them filter what you know. Okay? But use the Bible to filter that. Use the Bible to make sure it makes sense in the context of what that's talking about. 
Here's why. Here's my uh, final final exclamation point on why I think this is temple, and then we're going to see a clear distinction because he says, "Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not." And then he starts the next section with, "But concerning." That uh, in the Greek, that's peridae. That if you see how Paul uses that all over the place in his letters, but concerning are hard shifts in topic. Okay, here's this and this and this, but concerning something else. Okay, but concerning, he's talked about the temple, the temple, the temple, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. That sounds like his description of his return. Okay, you will not know. I think we're reaffirmed by maybe our Job interpretation of that of that verse there. You do not know what God knows. It will be very clear, but you will not know. The father knows. The father knows. So I think he's got temple, 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 temple. Temple, hard shift, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now I think we've changed topics. Now we've shifted to talking about His second coming, His parousia. And that will be the word He uses. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That coming is parousia. Parousia. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, Perusia. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay? I think he's made a hard shift here to talking about his second coming, his actual second coming. Um, if you move into Matthew 25, you're basically going to get a bunch of descriptions about um, what it is to be prepared, what it looks like to be prepared for a second coming, even without knowing the day or the hour. Okay? Well, but in 44, Urban is coming. I know. So there's, there's, um, it, uses that, it uses that in a couple places which are quarrelsome to me, which don't allow me to put it in a box, and that is one of them. 40, 44 does not use Perusia, and I, and I don't know why. And I don't know if it's because... Is he stating there, too, that the process is going to come when you don't, you don't know when the process is going to come or begin or... At, wait, wait, because... Because he's in the context of saying what actually happens there, because um, he he comes different from my second from me actual coming to what happens at my second coming, where one will be taken and one left. Um, possible, possible. Um, I struggle with that because because everything else has seemed relatively pretty easy to make distinct there. I think that is a way in which that does make sense. Um, I think I would have trouble putting you know putting a stamp on it. Because um, again, like th- that's where uh, I think he's made some clear distinction. It makes sense how these are coupled up to that point, and then 44 becomes a little bit unique, unless we understand it in that way. And then actually, I think that does make sense. That does seem to be consistent how he uses it. Yeah. Well, and I think at some point too, the word is living and active. So if you if you receive the scripture and you pray about it, and you ask God to reveal to you, it will be revealed. I'm kind of the old school too. That if Jesus said you're not going to know. You're not going to know. You're not going to know. Right. Yeah. And, and just be ready. And that makes sense within. You know, 
and so be ready. Yeah, and that makes sense within the discussion that he's made. A, he seems to have said, he's given signs here before, and so it, it would seem difficult that he's talking about the same thing. If he says, you're going to see all these things, and this will be the fall of the temple, if I'm going to take that as that could be his second coming, then I'm not sure what he's saying when no one, he says no one knows. Because yeah. he's kind of given us a way to know if that's the case. And it brings a bunch of those, the quacky folks who keep saying the world's going to end and it doesn't, into play as potentially viable. And I think that becomes difficult for us because God cannot, will not send a false prophet. So it's still in the context, I think that still rings pretty true. Um, you will have conversations turn on that particular distinction there. That's a good, that's a good eye, April. So here's where I think we run up into the question of a rapture. Okay? I think this leads us into um, one of the primary texts. How much... What time is it? Oh, oh, we've got time. I think we're going to make it. I think we're going to make it. Everybody's here till nine? Eight, eight. Okay. All right. So, so let's see. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Who's they? Who was eating and drinking until Noah entered the ark? Yeah, basically not Noah, I think. I think we can say they is going to be, we got Noah, and then we got not Noah. Okay? Noah and his family. And then we have everyone else who is a not Noah. Okay. They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Okay, make sense so far? Not Noah's? These are not in what category? Okay. Okay. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. In the days of Noah, who was taken, swept away, and who was left? The not Noah's were swept away. Yeah. Noah's were left. Away. Noah was left. What's our basic rapture concept? Our rapture concept says God's people are taken away and everyone else is left through some time of trial and then Christ returns. Now, frankly, that would be three returns. So there's something iffy about that to start off with. Okay? But if if we take Jesus' reference, in the days of Noah... Some were taken, some were left. And he says it will be like that. One will be taken, one will be left. Who seems to be the one that will be taken if it's the same thing happened in the days of Noah? That's not the church. That's not the church being taken away. That's the not Noah. (laughs) That's the not Noah people. The not church. We got our order kind of messed up there. Right? Our rapture concept says the church comes out and the, the good people, I'm going to use good and bad because they're easy distinctions, but we, they're not biblical distinctions, all right? Good people taken, bad people left. Days of Noah, bad people taken, good people left. It should put our notion of a rapture in a little bit of a quandary. Because Jesus' description and Noah as an example doesn't seem to be the order in which we understand a rapture. Let's, let's look at something else. Look at... Um, Matthew 13. We're going to look at the parables of the weeds and the wheats. Uh, this is going to be 1324. 
Uh, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says this in Matthew thirteen twenty four. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not, not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. What's the order in which bad is, is, is attacked and then good? Bad first. Bad first. First, harvest the weeds and then gather the weeds. Our order seems to match with Noah and Jesus' description in Matthew 24, but it does not seem to match the concept of a rapture, which would have God's people coming out first. Do we see our order is causing us a bit of an issue when it comes to a rapture concept? He seems to be describing an order that is not consistent with God's people being taken out. Questions on that so far? Okay. Um, oh, I wonder if I... I don't know if I have this quote in here. There was... Well, I, I'll get to it in just a minute. So let's, let's talk about kind of a brief, um, a brief history of the rapture, of the rapture concept. Um, I'm going to give you the a definition of the rapture as defined by people that believe it, because I want to be fair. Okay, I want to be fair to describe it. People that believe in the rapture, here's how they would describe it. Oral Roberts. Um, you guys heard of Oral Roberts University? Okay, in the South? That's, this is the guy. This is Oral Roberts. He said, he describes the rapture as, His appearance in the clouds will be veiled to the human eye, and no one will see him. He will slip in, slip out, move in to get his jewels, and slip out as in the cover of night. Okay? Jesus will return quietly. You will not know it. People will be raptured. The God's people will be taken out, and then he will slip out, and no one will be the wiser. Uh, G.S. Bishop is another guy. He said it will be a secret rapture. Quiet, noiseless, Sudden is the step of the thief in the night. Ah, see, he's used the thief in the night language. He's in there. All that the world will know will be that the multitudes at once have gone. You've been, you seen the bumper sticker? Okay, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Okay, that's what they're talking about. People just gone. And there's danger on the streets because God's people ain't driving. Okay? All right, so here's, here's the broad definition if we can pull this together. The, sec- uh, the rapture is the secret coming of Christ to take his church out of this world that will initiate the beginning of a seven-year tribulation before a millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, let's talk about the history of the rapture, and I think, oh, you guys are in the wrong spot. Um, I, might have, I might have pictures. The first time there's a record of rapture theology is in 1830. Okay? There are no church fathers, early church fathers, talking about a rapture. Okay? Written record of people discussing a rapture, first time shows up in 1830. This automatically should give me pause. Okay? It should give me pause to think that nobody who, who follows Christ has understood how this works until it's starting to be discussed in 1830. Now, if we're being honest, this is like written record. So is it possible that it's showing up before this and people are talking about it and it's otherwise not recorded? Sure. Sure. Okay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's less likely. Like you can hold that with some level of tenable, but... Yeah. 
So, but it's recorded. It's a, it's recorded first in 1830. Um, Margaret MacDonald had a prophetic conference. Um, this is where people would intentionally get together to try to see, receive word from God. Okay, there was one of those in town recently. Now, you guys, we've seen pictures of God's prophets, right? Like these guys are getting killed and beaten for the word from God that they're bringing. This concept of getting together and self-inducing to try to receive prophecy, I feel like is very, very shifty. Okay? Um, but she, gets, she has this prophetic conference. Um, there's a small room. It's like six to eight people in, in England. Puts herself in a self-induced fever and then receives a vision. And her vision is basically a description of the rapture. That, that God will return, that Christ will return, and will take his people out from the world, and it will leave, and it will be like two stages, basically. There will be time of tribulation, and then Christ will return again. And this is from the 1830s. This is from 1830. Okay, this is Margaret MacDonald. Um, around that same time, there's a man named John Nelson Darby. Um, Darby was um, a, a, an evangelist, and a very good one at that. Um, but he, he was known for weaving very difficult... Um, textures of scripture together and tying them and making firm stances because of them. Um, so he would grab a word here and grab a word here and kind of tie these things together and say, um, no one else is teaching this, but here's the truth. And he would defend the inerrancy of the Bible to his grave. The Bible is true. You just have to hook it right together. Um, he was, uh, his, his influence was very strong. He, he grew a church from like 20 to 500. Um, he had the ability to convince people that these things were true. Um, when he pointed them out when people would point him out and say, look, these aren't consistent. How you're weaving these together, it's out of context and it doesn't make any sense in the way the Bible describes this and this. He would dismiss them and say, you're just not reading it right. Okay, that's John Nelson Darby. He's talking about the same thing at the same time, this concept of a rapture. Okay, um, his, his, uh, there become a group of people named the Plymouth Brethren, excuse me, Plymouth Brethren. And this is a group of guys who are teaching basically this, this thought this process of there being a rapture. Um, they have an influence on a man named Cyrus Schofield. Schofield was the writer of the Schofield Reference Bible. And if you remember, I talked about this day one. This is the first reference Bible created, the first study Bible. Okay, Scripture on top, information about Scripture on the bottom. Uh, Schofield believes the rapture theology. In fact, he's got some other things that, that tie. I told you he was the guy that said um, Christ never designed the church. That was a mistake. He came for Israel. And when Israel rejected him, then church was plan B. Okay, that's Schofield. Um, he was the guy, um, when I told you, the, we, we went through the parable of the weeds and the wheats. I was looking for a reference. In his study Bible, one of the things he says, we describe the order. Okay, he gathers the weeds first, and then, and then he collects the weeds. His study Bible notes say uh, something to the extent of um, God's people will be gathered, um, uh, or the, the weeds will be punished, will basically um, drawn in for judgment. But first, God's people must be gathered and put in the barn. Okay? That's, that's his study Bible note. That is not the order in which the Bible gives, but that is, his, that is his note in his reference Bible. So that continues throughout some of his references throughout the Schofield Reference Bible. And so as a new study Bible, people are taking this biblical information on top, this stuff that he's teaching on the bottom, and uh, he has a very strong influence on how people are reading the Bible. Okay? The Schofield Reference Bible is uh, one of the most popular Bibles in the early 20th century. Uh, it was published in 1909. You can still get this online, by the way. If you do a search for Schofield Reference Bible online, you can look at his original 1909 notes. Um, there's, there's a website as part of a Bible commentary website. It was revised in 1913, um, but they don't, you know, they don't touch it all that often. Like Most of the notes are pretty, pretty the same. Um, a man named Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody. Anybody heard of him? Okay. Uh, D.L. Moody was an evangelist, and he spreads this theology. 
Okay, he uses um, he uses this. Um, Schofield Reference Bible at his Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and this rapture theology is one of the main pillars of the teaching. Okay, and it's energetic. Okay, there's something about saying God will return and He will take His people out, and they will suffer no more, and then and then destruction will come. Okay, there's something appealing about that, and so that, that becomes one of the one of the pillars of the teaching. A man named Billy Graham graduates from Moody Bible Institute. And he's been one of the most influential evangelical ministers in the last 500 years. And he writes a book called Approaching Hoofbeats that is basically a laying out of this theology. I checked this on Amazon yesterday. Um, and you, you can't find anything less than like a four and a half star rating of Billy Graham's Approaching Hoofbeats. Okay? This is a still very popular book um, and has a lot of influence on what people know and understand. And Billy Graham was an excellent evangelist and I believe he loves Jesus. Um, but his theology is informed by, by kind of this um, Dwight L. Moody, Cyrus Schofield, John Nelson Darby, rapture stuff starting from 1830. concept then takes off in the 1970s from a book by Hal Lindsey. Anybody heard of the book called The Late Great Planet Earth? Okay. That's, that's rapture doctrine. Um, that book outsells the Bible in the 1970s. Outsells the Bible. Um, he, he said uh, uh, on The Late Great Planet Earth, um, it was based upon... Uh, wait... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he predicted, basically, that the world would end in 1988 as part of this late great planet Earth. Um, and w- watch what he did. It was based upon the establishment of Israel, the nation of Israel, in 1948. And then he's got a generation issue. He said, Jesus talking about a generation not passing in Matthew 24, 40 years out, would put you at end of the world in 1988. Okay? That's where the prediction came from. He took biblical words... And I would say pull it out of context, and we ended up with an end of the world in 1988. Now, did the world end in 1988? Okay, that should give some pause, okay, of where this theology is coming from. Um, I don't know, ask Rick. That was the year we got married. <laughs> Rick's world ended in 1988. <laughs> um, one thing I'll touch on real quick, um, and we might spend more time on this later, but you guys need to be, we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful about how much credence we put in the creation of a political state of Israel in 1948. The Bible simply does not talk about it in that context. Okay? We have to ignore Galatians. In fact, most of what Paul is talking about when he's describing the nation of Israel as basically God's people, Jew and Gentile, if we want to load this up on a nation of Israel, we need to be very careful about that. Okay? The, the nation of Israel is a mission field, just like everybody else. They don't get to heaven without Christ. Do not get to heaven without Christ. That is how you get to heaven. There's no special clause for Israel. This is not God's chosen people, the political state of Israel, established in 1948. It's not. We need to be careful. Some of our American foreign policy is based upon some understandings of Israel as being a, a favored nation. Um, we ignore some of the impact of the people that the nation of Israel deals with, like the Palestinians. Neither of those groups are innocent in their own bloodshed. But we don't have angels versus demons in Israel and Palestine. Okay? Be careful, please, on how we react to things, how we look at the nation of Israel. It is not holy. God's nation of Israel is holy. Okay? A nation state of Israel in the Middle East, not holy. Okay? Be careful how we digest news, especially... In, and I know why people do this. I know how we get on that. Um, I think it's misusing a little bit of Scripture, and I, I think it's some blindness. Be careful.
Do you have a question, Lorna? Or just resting your hand? Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't it? I remember I, it describes the rapture. Uh, it describes the rapture, what would be a rapture. I can't think of the words. It's in First it's in First Thessalonians, and we'll t- we'll talk about that before we leave today. We'll we'll talk about um, what I think that's describing. So we will get to that, I promise, because that's we've already talked about two of the main scriptures. That's that'll be the third one. Okay, so we will definitely get to that. Okay, so things start to calm down after the late great planet Earth, and then they get resurrected again when the guys guys named Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins write the what Left Behind series. Okay, Left Behind series. Left Behind series has sold over sixty three million. Copies. Four films. Was it 15 books? Okay. That is how you go to a something that really hadn't been discussed in church as a church doctrine until 1830 becomes your dominant theology in the United States today. That's where the rapture, that's a history of where the rapture came from. All right, let's look at the major texts. Um, I'm going to do this one, and this is the one that I said was really shifty. Um, but it's Revelation 4.1. Um, Re- Revelation is a book written by John. Um, he has um, some specific things that he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, um, and, uh, but then is able to see kind of these visions that otherwise describe uh, our understanding of what the future looks like or how these guys, these guys can be encouraged. Um, here we go. Revelation 4.1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which what must take uh, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." Did you catch it? You missed it. You missed the rapture. Hold on, go back. You're gonna be traffic jams. You missed it. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." Well, bam, rapture. Here's the discussion. There's a guy named M. R. Dayhan. Um, he's, a, he's a premillennial rapture guy and he says this brief passage from Revelation is one of the shortest but one of the clearest pictures in scripture of the rapture of the church John come up here come up here that I may show you um, and here's where this has come from um, it says this call seems clear to indicate the fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4 13-17 which is kind of the rapture it's the, it's the verse I think you're thinking of Lorna and we'll talk about it the word church he says this is how we know this is the rapture the word church does not occur in Revelation again until all is fulfilled in Revelation 19-21 okay so because they come up and we don't see the word church again it must have been the rapture of the church okay that's correct that description is correct. But the word church actually doesn't occur until Revelation, in Revelation, until 2216. It's the first time it happens. In Revelation 19, the army, the church is present, even though the word church isn't there. Which means the absence of that word after Revelation 4 does not seem to be a decent point. Okay? He just used a different word to describe the church. It's the, it's the army in Revelation 4. The word saints, okay, people within the church, occurs in Revelation uh, 19, uh, occurs 12 times in Revelation, 11 times between chapters 5 and 18. Okay? So that's a lot writing on the fact that the exact word church doesn't exist in Revelation between those areas when the word saints does. Okay? And when he's describing God's people as armies in Revelation 4. Revelation 4.1 is also a singular personal pronoun. I. John. I. That's not everyone. That's not a bunch of people. That's a guy. Okay? That's a stretch. That one's a stretch. Uh, we talked about Matthew 24 to 36, um, and also Matthew 13, where, where I, I, I have a hard time accepting those as legitimate rapture texts rapture text because the order is not right. 
Okay? It's different than what the Bible describes as far as the order in which judgment happens. Let's get to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I think that will probably end our, end our night. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-17. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may gr- not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. Okay, I think we got something to talk about there. All right, first of all, what are they concerned about? Paul's giving them an encouragement in what? What are they concerned about? Yeah, they're, they're concerned about someone who's already died. They're, this isn't a question about our people or the earth being raptured off. They're concerned that Christ has not returned. And what will happen to those that have already died, right? That's his assurances. Okay? Now listen to the description of the Lord coming. The Lord will be sent from heaven with a what? A cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, I've heard of a, of a silent rapture where people sneak in and sneak out, but I feel like you can't describe it as a trumpet and, and a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. That can't be a silent rapture, right? So at least we have a problem with this silence that is supposed to be and this sneaking in and sneaking out like a thief. So something isn't right about those two things that we're using. You can't support it saying he comes in like a thief and then have Paul describe it as some sort of battle cry. Do we understand we can't hold those two things in tandem? They can't fit together. All right. It does sound like you're going to know what's going on. Okay, when Christ, I think this is Christ's return. You're going to know. Lightning, east to west, you're going to know. But we have to deal with being caught up together. Um, let's look at the word meat. Let's look at the word meat in, in verse 17. Anybody got the Greek word for meat? It's, I think the P is silent. I think it's um, uh, anontasis. I've heard, I, if you hit the Greek man, hit, hit, the, hit the Strong's guy. He said appendices. <laughs> anontasis. Yeah. Anontasis. There it is. There's, the, there's our Greek man. He tells me everything about life. Okay? Anontesis. So there he is. So the, we meet the Lord in the air. <laughs> Are you playing with it? We're checking the doggy reference. <laughs> okay. Someone look to me. Uh, actually, I'll do it. Um, I want to look. Uh, we're looking at Acts 28. Because we see that same word used. And uh, I'll start in, in uh, Acts 28.11. Thanks, guys. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patchouli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Let me ask this question. When he goes to meet Paul, where do they go from there? Back. 
back. They went, they went to meet Paul, and then they all went back. Okay? Here, here's how I think the word meet makes sense in this circumstance when we're looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Is it says, we will meet the Lord in the air. But I don't think we're meeting Him in the air to be taken to somewhere else. Using the same context that, Paul, that is used to describe Paul and Acts, we are to meet the Lord in the air and then we return with Him to the earth to live. Because the way the Revelation describes how we're to understand the end of the, end of the world, like, we're not done here. This is our place. The new heaven is the new earth. Okay? What we have, where we live right now, will be refined by fire. It will be purified, turned back into what God originally designed it to be. We will be risen up off the earth to meet Jesus in the air. The earth will be refined by fire, and then we will return with Christ to live on the earth forever. It's not a rapture. We're being pulled up off the earth so He fulfills His promise of redeeming it. And then we and God are returned to earth as the new heaven to live forever with Him. We're not meeting Him in the air so that we can continue going. We're meeting Him in the air so that we may return with Him. That's meat there. And it's, it's the same way that meat is used in that discussion with Paul. They go out to meet him, and then they join him as they return. That's how I think they're using meat in that verse. And the thing is, is that like, that puts our rapture references down to very, very minimal. I, I'm all, I can understand rejecting that meat. Okay? That I get. If you let first, but, but then First Thessalonians has to sit on its own as the only primary referent we have for a viable rapture doctrine. Okay? Because I think that, revel- that revelation reference is bogus. It's, just, it's not a good reference. And the order is wrong for the other two. If, if meat is used in the same way it's used to describe Paul and Rome, I think that makes a ton of sense. And all that stuff put together, all that stuff put together means we do not know the day or the hour. There will be no secret rapture of which we are taken out of the world. It means when Christ returns, you will know it. And Christ will have returned. There is nothing stopping right now. He could come now, and now, and now, and now. And He's returned. And the only type of meeting that we'll do with Christ is that we'll meet Him in the air, He will refine the earth, and we will return to live forever in His kingdom. That's what I think we're looking at when we're talking about. I just, there is, there is not enough verses, not enough narrative to, I think, sustain a rapture doctrine. And it's to be... To be honest with you, we need to be careful with it. Because the very description that, that we're given in Revelation is, is God is, is he's sitting and there's, there's these martyrs of the church that are under the throne. And the people are dying in the name of Christ. And they're talking to God and they're saying, when will it stop? And God says, it'll stop when it's been enough. More will suffer. More will die in my name. And the concept of a rapture says, before all this tribulation starts, we get to leave. That doesn't seem like God's description of what His people are doing. It simply doesn't. That's not the vision that we get of what it looks like to follow Christ. If that was the case, then how the disciples follow Christ looks different than how we follow Christ. They get martyred for what they know. They get problems with the world from what they know. And we get kind of jolly raptured out. And that, some of that is predicated on the thought that says th- there's not quarrels and wars and rumors of wars today. 
We, we see wars and we say, oh, the troubles must be a-coming because the United States is starting to see some wars. You go to some of the bowels of the earth. Those guys have been in war for centuries and you're going to make the case to them that the real bad stuff hasn't happened yet? Be calm, Christian, in Africa. Be calm, Christian, who's under the thumb of some sort of dominant force somewhere else in the world. What you're going through isn't the tribulation. We'll know what it is when America feels it. There's Christians everywhere, guys. That's where, the, that's where the rapture becomes a dangerous concept when it marginalizes other people that love Christ because they're not having our same experience. And we say, you wait until the tribulation really starts. I know ISIS is murdering members of your family that believe in Christ, but don't, the revelation is not started yet because we're not seeing it. There's some blindness in that. We've got to be careful. I know why we want to believe that, but I think it's a false picture of what our life following Christ looks like. I think it's a false picture of what Christ has told us following Him looks like. So I think we've got to be real careful with that. Okay? I think we believe in it for reasons that make sense. Good, gracious God pulls us out. No tribulation for Christians. I just don't, know, I don't think it's tenable in the Scripture. I'm going to let that sit upon you. It's going to weigh heavy. Okay? I, I struggled with that to let that go. I'll be honest, and I, there's still part of me that struggles with that. Um, but think on that. Pray on that stuff. If you want to talk more about it next week, we will. But I've, I'm over time. But I wanted to tuck that stuff up. Thank you, guys. I'm sorry. No, it's your question. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Otherwise, we're done, Lord. This is you. Down a rabbit trail. I didn't mean to. Oh, no, 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 no. Per- no, that was perfect. You just joined in. You, exactly. You joined me down a rabbit trail. If this class is not a rabbit trail, it is nothing. All right. You guys are free to go. Thank you very much for coming.